Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional scrum trainers Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky discuss agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky. And we are recording. All right, Mr. Boobles, kick us off, man. All right, so this week on the podcast, we've got Troy McGinnis. Uh, Troy joins us from Seattle. Uh, Troy's been an executive. He's worked with a lot of major companies and helped them with uh, probabilities and forecasting and understanding metrics. And uh, we were just joking about how like he just loves data, 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 data. So uh, we're going to dive into some of the details of that. So thanks. Thanks for joining us, Troy. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So Troy, we were talking before we got started here about this new course that you have. Uh, it's in a free course, the Math on Flow. So, what was what's your goal with this course that you that you put out there? Yeah, there's a lot of material that um, explains some of the underpinnings of, of you know agile and flow systems in general. And you know, back in the late '80s and '90s, there's a book called Agile. Uh, sorry, called Factory Physics. And Factory Physics sort of changed the world of manufacturing because it gave people uh, the reasons why uh, setting up flow systems in production lines was a good idea, and and our industry pulled on that a lot. If you look at, at Donald Ronaldson's work, you know, principal product development flow and those sort of things, he's constantly referencing that book, but bringing it into our domain. Uh, so what I wanted to do was uh, try and change the format of how we present that agile physics sort of mathematics of flow to uh to a new generation so uh of course we had to use video and uh and uh so i uh, i sort of decided that uh, i would put up and record over time uh a series of articles and videos and spreadsheets which which try and teach the underpinnings of a lot of what we profess as true in in agile so uh, you know what batch size and utilization of efficiency and uh, things like that and why cycle time follows certain distribution shapes and what we can learn from it. Little things over the years I've had to explain one-on-one and now trying to do you know, a bit more efficiently and let people uh, to just subscribe over time. And as I add more material, they will uh, in, get to get it. Yeah. Boring stuff. No one's going to um, buy it. So I've, I've made it free. <laughs> Great stuff, though. So when someone says, well, why do I care about flow? You're an executive. You've been an executive. Like, how do you answer that question? Yeah, well, if you don't sort of take control of flow at a full organizational level, you'll get local efficiencies of flow in certain teams and areas and so forth. So one of the things around predictability that upsets executives is they never get what they want, right? They, they get everything. They get something. Uh, but it's never sort of what they sort of plan to get. And uh, as we sort of grow the number of teams, flow gets a lot harder to measure, observe, and control uh, across a whole organization where there's competing competing needs and competing people and competing fiefdoms. So uh, we sort of, what I sort of try and do in sort of talking about flow is, is get people to zoom out a bit and look at, uh, you know, flow through the whole organization, not just local team flow. And I think Agile's done a good job starting to understand and help teams flow themselves individually, but uh, we've done a poor job giving advice of how to help organizations flow across multiple teams, a la dependencies. What do you say? Oh, go ahead, Jeff. I I was just kind of curious when you're saying like zooming out and looking at that more organizationally, um, 
I'm curious if it's implied in there that we've we're looking at a system where there's lots of dependencies and handoffs between teams, or is it more we want to look at it from the point of almost like a a concept the cache idea. So if we have a team that is able to take ideas from a backlog, do all the work themselves and push it out to a team, would that be synonymous with the organizational level that you're looking at? Potentially, yeah, because there's more than just team handoffs as dependency types. Sometimes there's, uh, we need to learn something before we do something. Now, I mean, the the biggest secret is uh, as you move up in an organization, you get to VP level. Every VP is a VP of no, because what happens is everything gets escalated to that point. And what you're really doing is just uh, you're breaking an argument and sort of saying, no, no, we're going to do this instead. Now, as organizations grow and there's more things they can deliver, what happens is is you've got to say no to the right things and then explain it because locally it seems like an excellent idea. So uh, in zooming out, what you're really doing is you're trying to sort of say, as a company, although these are all fantastic things we should do, I need this one done earlier for a reason that may not be publicly known to you at the moment. We're about to be acquired. We're about to acquire someone else. You know, there, there are sort of many things that you want to do. So I think um, dependencies to me is about sort of increasing the value density of what you're delivering towards a strategy and an outcome, not just all local really good outcomes. I want to, I'm, I'm more trying to orchestrate a denser value delivery towards an intentional outcome. And that's not a shared outcome across all parts of the organization. So they argue about, and I mean, it just seems insane. What? You, you want me to pause that and do this? Are you insane? Like this is an incredibly local profitable sort of feature. Uh, and, and it is, but it's not sort of uh, furthering a strategy as much of all. I mean, I think I mean, you, you think back to the blockbuster executives, right? You know, well, we make our money from late fees and we make our money from setting up DVDs, you know, like let's keep our eye on the prize until it wasn't. So that isn't uh, the teams were delivering flawlessly, but organizationally. So I think dependencies is more, managing dependencies is more about increasing the value of the in business intentional strategy growth rather than just anything. So we tend to boil that down to a simple point of let's just make sure we do handoffs team to teams in a small, smoother way great, more power to you, but uh, let's weigh in and have a way of understanding, given that you're a constraint, I want you to work on A rather than B for these reasons. And dependencies becomes a, a bit more of a asset. We view it now as being this big problem we've got to solve, but you know what it's really highlighting is, is that we've got to expend our effort wisely. How are we going to do that? That's what I mean by zooming out. So really, I don't know. I'm going to reframe this in a different way. You tell me if you agree or disagree. So like it's kind of a balance then at that point between a little bit of predictability of delivery, uh, effectiveness and efficiency. And you're making those trade-offs inside of the organization, but hopefully strategically, like you were saying, towards whatever goal or strategy you have as a product that you're trying to deliver to your customers. What are your thoughts on that? If I, the way I reframe Yeah, that? no, I, I like it. It's, it's, it's true. I mean... Um, you know, we get down to predictability and uh, what we're 
I think what your job is is to not blow the whole company based on any one decision that you make, right? So you've got to sure. you've got to take smaller bets to make sure that you can get in the direction. But even there, you can't be certain it's going to work. So you've just got to be somewhat sure this is the best bet we can make at the moment with the constraints we have. Uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, put effort into solving the constraints. Uh, so I see that as strategy. I see strategy as being we want to do something, but we're unable to because we're structured in a certain way. That's my problem to solve. Hopefully before it becomes the uh, inevitable you, end. How do you ha- how do you help clients see that? Because a lot of times people think of good decisions based off the outcome, right? And sometimes you took a real low, low probability bet and you got lucky. And so how do you, and sometimes you took a really high probability bet and you, and you didn't get lucky, you know, you got unlucky, you, you, it didn't hit. So how do you, how do you help clients to like realize that and make, you know, better bets? Yeah, I think in our industry, the positive stories of small bets that turned out well, uh, are already covered in the press. They're very rare, and they sort of they, they, we, we we have a lot more counter examples than pro examples of uh, of um, you know small low probability bets turning good. Um, where we're we're very much in the reversion to mean zone where everything's a toss up. <laughs> where uh, you know mm-hmm. pick your backlog by tossing a coin is probably going to outperform even a large amount of analysis. Um, but your job still is is to uh, help people understand why they're doing things so it's not just you making that bet alone. So now we're increasing the odds of it being a correct bet because we're drawing upon the group consensus and understanding and hire people who uh, who disagree a lot to make sure that you've got the counterbalance of you going off half-cocked thinking that you've got all the right answers. That, that doesn't happen, you know, even... Okay, this may need to be cut, but you know, if you look at Elon Musk, he acquired Tesla. He didn't start the cars. He acquired the company. He acquired SpaceX. He acquired them once there was some chance of it being successful. So he's not that renegade going out spending his money on very high-risk projects. He acquires companies once they're proven to be they've proven it's possible to do and more likely than not to occur. He gives the illusion as if it's all just sort of spontaneous, but it's not. And I think that's sort of, um, if you want to stand out, that's the way you do it. You take credit for it after everyone else has done the hard bits. And that, that's how you get ahead being, uh, being an executive. But, uh, you know, be under no illusion, um, we don't hear about his failures as much as we hear about his successes. Yeah, the... I, I just rewatched your your 2018 Agile keynote, and like I, I love it. I, f- I find it inspirational every time I go back and, and listen to it. Um, and there's a lot of different topics that you hit on in there. Um, I've got a number of things that I, I would love to get to at some point if if we've got time. Um, but you were you were just talking about those biases that you that that are inherent in when we're making decisions on things, and, and in particular survivorship bias, right? The things that survive, we give undue weight to when we're trying to to make decisions on, um, and and that is at least that's what I was hearing in the example that you were just talking about with Tesla. Mm-hmm. Is like we we only see the, the successes that were survived, and thus we give them more weight. Uh, another great example of that, and, and my wife would kill me for using this as an example, but like she loves crime junkies. All right, yeah, like, yeah. 
Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, uh, my wife does too. Should we be worried? Should we be concerned? <laughs> I mean, the Google history says how to hide a body. Should we? Should we? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I don't think I'm worth that much. My my life insurance uh, plan isn't enough. that high. Um, Good strategy. But but to her, every like all the doors are locked at night. The security cameras are on because her her mental picture of the world is crime is everywhere and we always have to be prepared. But that's because that's what's kind of fed into the system. And that's yeah. what she gives preference to when making decisions on things. Um, and, and I just I, I think it's a, a fun thought experiment to think about, like, what are the biases that we have when we're making decisions? Um, and what are all the other influences that if we we took a step back and and that's why I think data is a powerful thing. Like that was one of the other things of data plus conversation. Um, but what what can we remove those biases for when we have empirical data to be looking at and help inform the decisions that that we want to be make or using to make decisions moving forward on? Yeah, uh, I agree. And my wife calls that what you sort of said will we'll be murdered in our sleep. So yes, the doors are locked here as well, just in case anyone wants to come around. But yeah, um, I mean, exactly. We we uh, we decision making is and always will be imperfect. Um, and the biggest tool in the toolbox for solving that is by having a diverse group of people agree on something, or at least uh, at least give you everything, all the reasons why it won't work. So if you're not that type of leader that is uh, open to negatives and things being said that's wrong, you're just asking for making a poor bet at some point in time because there's always someone quietly sitting in the corner sort of saying, oh, that's, this is a real dumb idea. And if you haven't uh, had an environment where that's possible to express that, then you get what you deserve. So I sort of, um, you know, you, you've got to find – a diverse crowd of people to make those, uh, to help you avoid your cognitive biases. And if you're just mm -hmm. getting all white 50 year old males, you're also getting biases. So, you know, like it, it, it makes no sense to actually, um, to not realize that intelligent people come from all walks of life. It's just plain dumb. You know, one thing that I guess, yeah, you could ask the people doing the work or the people that know a space and say, what do you think? And you could get a lot of perspectives and try to do some analysis. But I think like it just it comes down to small bets, like you were saying, but in production, like frequent leasing, learning in a marketplace, and then like looking for patterns. Because it's like product development is like a game that we're playing that's an infinite game, but the rules are always changing. And so like you have to figure out what the rules are and you don't know until you play the hand. And if you don't play the hand, you don't know what the rules are. So, you know, you played a big bet and the rules changed and uh, you lost, mm -hmm. you know, so better to make small bets, figure out the rules and the patterns, and then try to make your bigger bet, you know, at the right time, if you're going to make a bigger bet. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Like, instead of just asking people try to release frequently. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you're increasing your group to all your customer base. I mean, what, what bigger group can you have to test your ideas on then? than everyone who's going to use it, right? So you're just increasing the um, the feedback pool. And I think that's sort of the way to go. I mean, your your main job is is to make sure that no bet will wipe you out. So, uh, you know, I mean, we know the upper limit. If I'm making an extinction level event by going up with this decision and going in this direction, uh, then, you know, that's probably a bad idea. And we know doing nothing at all has its own risk. So the answer is somewhere in between, uh, you know, and right. I would, you know, that's why 
when I teach prioritization techniques, I talk about you've got to understand the company and the market you're doing it for. Because if you only have a chance to invest in one more bet before you're bankrupt, make it a good one. So, so the less money you have, the more, uh, the more research you should do. Because if you get it wrong, you're uh, you're going to uh, to bankrupt the company. So, uh, you know, the companies who have a large amount of cash and can afford to fail multiple times, they can be a bit more cavalier with their decision making. So, you got to put the context in it here of. Uh, of understanding the market you're in and how fast it's moving uh, because, you know, doing nothing might send you bankrupt just as fast as doing one thing badly. So uh, it's all context. And gee, I sound like a consultant. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the game of poker, right? Like if you play Texas Hold'em, like if you were down and short stacked and you just like kept anting and anting and you'd never play any hands and you wouldn't, you just lose all your money, right? If you don't do anything, but at some point, you have to say, I think I have a good enough hand to win, and you've got to go all in. Like, that's a common strategy that people have when, you know, the people they're playing have more money than they do, and you can't buy well, back in. Yeah, so you can't. go all in with a short stack with a good, with what they think is a better hand than everybody else, trying to, you know, win, win that with one big hand. And that might be a, but, a choice like you're talking about. Well, a lot of the strategy is to help your competitors fail, force them into a situation where they have to invest in an area that's, they can't force them into an area where you're getting their most profitable customers away from them with a with a key sexy feature right so strategy isn't just about sort of what's logical and what everyone wants sometimes what you're trying to do is drive the market in a certain direction to hurt your competitors so that they go bankrupt leave the table and now you now you've got more leeway to to do what you want to do and Sometimes it doesn't matter what your customers think. I've had a couple of companies where, you know, biggest paycheck wins. Uh, and it's right because it's a, it's, a, it's a vision that they have that they're moving forward in. And it's just an incomplete to the market yet where they want to take the industry. And uh, so, you know, even sort of in that case there, the customer's direction may mislead you and distract you. So you've got to, you got to sort of, understand sort of uh, how to help the business and facilitate the business being able to achieve what it wants to do and i think that's where we come in in agile is that we we give you the opportunity in the system to have multiple bites of the cherry to progressively move without standing idle and to change direction should it become necessary and and that's what that's that's our superpower so what a what's the alternative Go back to going dark for two years and then sort of releasing a product that no one wants. I mean, we're not we're not ever going to go back to that because the being able to running a business in that sense is just too risky now. It would be dumb. Yep. Um, but uh, so we're not competing anyone. We've been going back and forth between these two, these two topics. I find it really interesting. Um, what one of the comments what, again, referring back to your your keynote, not that I expect you to memorize it, but um, oh yes, one of the interesting things that the comments that you made was we we trade off innovation for predictability. And I to me, what we've been talking about is those two things thus far. We've been talking about flow and consistency and predictability. And then we started jumping into innovation and strategy and how, you know what were the new things that we want to experiment with. So, when you're coming into an organization, um, you know how how do you help them find that balance? B- 
between, hey, we want to have be consistent. We want to have flow with our delivery teams. And we want to give them the space to innovate, to experiment, to learn. Like, how, how do you help an organization find that balance for them? Yeah, it's you make them aware of it to begin with, that, that there are actually two ends of the spectrum there. And there's a there's an agile coach, not an agile coaching, there's a coaching instrument for executives and behaviors coming out of the psychology world called polarities. And polarities are that whatever behavior you use, you can overdo and underdo. So say you were going to run a marathon, you can train or rest. And there's upsides to training, you build muscle, you build endurance, that's great. And there's a downside to training too much. You you get injured, you pull muscles, you get, you know, uh, and then resting. Yeah, okay, your muscles recover and you um, you actually have the ability to uh, stay feeling well. But the downside of too much rest is you're actually um, not building endurance and you're not going to be able to run the marathon again. So you know, what happens is, is people constantly oscillate between too much and too little. And our job as coaches is to help them understand when they move into the downside of of any one of those extremes. So if you only did innovation, what would be your early warning indicator that there's too much innovation? Well, you know, we, we're, we're not sort of dealing with our current customer needs. We're, we're sort of adding features that have very low uptake. Uh, and then you know, I try and help them put, um, you know, a, a metric on. So if we find that the people don't move to the next version of our product within three weeks of its release, we've probably released something that our current market didn't want. So maybe our innovation isn't, 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 uh, is moving too far. And then on the counter side, if we just look after our current customers, how could we tell uh, that we're doing too much of that? And they might say, well, we, we start losing our current customers to a competitor because of one or two key features. So we get more, and on it, you know, when you lose a sale, you do a sales objection. You know, why why did we lose you? Why didn't you buy from us? Just uh, if we can buy five minutes of your time and send you a Starbucks gift card, tell us why you chose the competitor. And they might say, because they had this feature that you don't have. So now you know that you're under-investing in innovation. So I try and help them set some very simple, easy measures that um, have a, a binary answer to them. Once we start losing the the defect rate is more, you know, the defection to the competitor rate is more than X percent. Um, we're going to stop and reassess our strategy and maybe increase the investment in new innovative features to get back to parity, stuff stuff like that. So, um, but it starts with making them realize there's there's a, where there, there, where there is an or constraint, we only do innovation or we only do sustaining work. I help them understand that our job is to, slide the lever somewhere between those two points and how to tell. Mm -hmm. So I tend to coach on metrics, not not just on the performance of the flow, but how to detect where um, we're overdoing a metric. Because you can do any metric. You can overdo, like have zero defects. What would you do? Well, stop writing code would be the easiest one. No more defects are going to be introduced, right? Um, maybe right. sort of spend another six hours sort of testing on my machine before checking in. All that sort of decreases your ability to deliver fast. So even things which seem to be obviously that you should try and strive for have a downside if over overdone. So I spend a lot of my time trying to help people solve those dilemmas um, and make them do a bit of each. And the job is to pick where on that so bit of each. 
Um, with without necessarily asking you to you know give away the the secret sauce if if you've got some, but do you have kind of like the Troy McGinnis go to metrics? Like when you go into an organization, you're looking for cycle time, flow, you're looking for value delivery. Like, do you have kind of like your go-to set of metrics that if, hey, if this organization isn't looking at this, this is where I start? No, I don't have exact metrics. Like I have my favorites, uh, but I sort of, I view performance as being this six-way tug of war between between competing needs. And uh, I'm going to try and remember them. Sort of, sure, you want to do things fast. So you want your cycle time to be low or your lead time to be low, right? So there's an element of moving fast. Mm -hmm. There's an element of moving a lot of stuff. So throughput or velocity, that, that, that stuff is moving. Now, whatever you measure depends on what level in the organization you're looking at. So it might be stories at a team level, but it might be features at an org level. It might be products at, a, at, a, at an even higher level than that. So we got speed and we got the amount of stuff you do, a quantity. And then we got the consistency of that quantity because it's no good just doing these big bursts. We're going to heap done. Oh my God, we're exhausted. Oh my God, we're going to heap done. Oh my God, we're exhausted, right? So that's the variance of how much you sort of deliver. And then you've got how well you're doing it. Is it what you're releasing? Are you having to roll back production all the time? Like, don't tell me you're really a high performing org because you can live it a lot, really fast, really stable, but you broke production every time you did it. That's that's no good. So they're the four main flow metrics that you got to get a control of at all points of the organization. And it matters less what metric you have there and more that you can spot where by saying do things faster and do more of it with impacted quality or by sort of saying let's just do quality that you've impacted cycle time. And it's about helping the team see where they've made unintentional trade-offs or you as an executive have forced them to make a trade-off and the other two that you've got to make you've got to make certain because they were the four that the larry mascheroni and everyone come up with in the early days of um, the product uh, software performance index but i found you could do all those really well and still fail as a company because you weren't releasing what people wanted there wasn't a value metric uh, a, a fit for purpose sort of metric and then I thought, oh, okay, now we're done. There's five, you know, that's that, that's a that's a good sort of prime number. So I'm happy with that. But but then I realized you could do all those five absolutely perfectly and still screw up because you burned, you treated your people so poorly. They left. You treated your people so poorly that they um they just sort of would work for anyone else other than you. You know, like so there needed to be some form of measure of sustainability that the, you would set up an environment where your teams and processes and products could consistently do that month after month, year after year. Uh, and it turns out that's the one I go after first because if an organization can't prove to me that they're operating in a sustainable way, it doesn't matter what the other metrics were. They're not going to be that when I look next. So if I can't go into an organization and make sure that they're operating and managing their product development organizations in a sustainable way, I can't use any of last week's metrics to forecast. I can't use any of last week's metrics to make any coherent decision about how I should structure or organize my teams. It doesn't matter because they're not going to be there and they're not going to be operating the same way by the time I need them to be. So I start with sustainability. I make sure there's a, a way that the company understands how they choose the work they're doing. That's my value metric. Um, 
And that can be as simple as this is what we said we were going to do and this is what we delivered. Why aren't they similar? <laughs> what what have you what have you done wrong there, right? Or it could be the ratio of innovation versus sustaining features. Something that sort of shows that they have a handle on the metrics. And then I go after the traditional flow metrics to make sure that now we're able to put work through that system. Because if you're not choosing the right stuff, and if you don't have a way of making sure you can continue to deliver that stuff, I don't care what flow metrics said you were doing. So I start with those first two and then move on to the traditional flow metrics to make sure that the organization is moving stuff. The other one, the category that I look at is like unrealized value, like so market yeah. share. So imagine you're Netflix right now, right? Like so Netflix has, I don't remember the exact stats, but it's like 70 million accounts in the US or something like that. And there's like 130 million like households, they, they, they figure something like that. So pretty saturated at this point through the pandemic. So what yeah. are they going to do? They're going to keep adding new features. We're just going to love it as users. We're not going to drop it, but they're not going to make any more money. And if their goal is to make more money and have more margins, then and they want growth, well, that's not going to do anything for them. So what they need to do is say, well, what else are we going to do? Well, we can't capture this other area unless we do something else. Maybe we need to have a tier for ads, and that's going to capture that last little bit. Or maybe we need to get into gaming, because that's a whole other market area. Or maybe we need to, I don't know, do something else, right? Like there's other avenues to open up in different to different areas and charge more or to, to provide more value to your customers so you can charge more. So I think that there's some type of like unrealized value or market share that you have to uh, take into consideration because at a certain point you can be too saturated or it's just the acquisition cost isn't worth it in that, in that market segment that you're in. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think Jeff hit it before where he talked about, you know, uh, successful ISIS and stuff like that, that we we take credit for stuff which probably wasn't ours alone. I see a lot of cases the market is responsible for the growth of the company rather than anything we do in product development. <laughs> so, so, you know, we, we like to take credit that, you know, we've, we've got this good, well-performing product org that chooses the right features and that's what's causing our growth. But we know it was a pandemic and everyone sort of um, puts yourself on mute sort of turns at 45 degrees and watches Netflix while they're in the middle of their Zoom calls? Or is that just me? But maybe it's not just me. I don't do it when I'm running training. But like, <laughs> like I'm a, I mean, that's why I have so many exercises in my training. But, you know, the point is, yeah, I mean, a lot of the time discerning whether it was the market that was growing or your decisions around the product is near impossible to, to, to do. And what happens often the first time companies find out about it is they're the last to know. Everyone else has worked it out except them, you know, like, oh, oh, oh streaming is important. Uh, so um, so I don't have any magic source in that area other than I, um, I'm very skeptical when um, I get given, we wouldn't be this successful if we didn't know what we were doing as a product org. Uh, like, you know, yes, you're the only source of ice in the Sahara. I think that you were going to do well, even if you were inefficient at producing <laughs> ice. And uh, and then you're uh, and but you're taking credit for it. Um, and being a consultant, I can get away with being a bit more brutal and blunt on that one on one with some executives, right? Uh, but I think that the best I can do is increase their curiosity to understand. Have we just fell into a good market here or did we do something to sure. cause it? And um, and then I sort of say, well, let's increase the chance that you are responsible and <laughs> not just uh, not just taking credit for it. So it's, 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 it's a tough one to know. And I don't think anyone 
anyone really sort of knows. And say you're SpaceX, and now yeah. all of a sudden um, the biggest, the alternative supplier of sending astronauts to the ISS is suddenly sort of now under sanctions. Do, do SpaceX take credit for the increase in business of launching satellites and, and astronauts to the ISS now? I mean, it wasn't there. They didn't cause the war. So, uh, or the, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a, I think the more senior you get in the executive world, the more you realize how little you control. So control the things you can. And the only thing you can really do is make sure you treat people well, keep them happy and get out of their way. Uh, and you alone will certainly want to take credit for it to, if no other reason than to earn your yearly bonus. So, I mean, you are a biased sort of, uh, a biased adjudicator of your own success at that level. And you get rewarded for it when it wasn't even because of you. So you get reaffirmed constantly. Yeah. Those are interesting topics. Uh, I know. It's a bit, it's, it's a bit, a bit <laughs> far from Agile for you, I know. Sorry. But yeah. mean, you see why Agile is needed now, right? Because, I mean, when we do want to make a change in a decision and change our mind, we, we need to be able to action it. Um, I, I was thinking just examples as you were going through that, right? You've got Zoom, you've got Peloton, and, like, nobody yeah. sat around and was like, hey, this is going to be the right market Miro. to be in when the pandemic hits, right? Like. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, so good examples there. If, if you don't mind, I, I kind of want to, there, there's two other things that I would love to, to pick your brain on. Um, uh, we'll, we'll start with one. Uh, so has anything changed in your perspective about, or is there any new data that you can bring to the conversation around the, the, the story point versus throughput conversation? Um, you know, I think you did a really good job of kind of identifying the difference there, and it, 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 it's a, it, it is an it depends uh, conversation. Um, and I think the other thing that you really hit on was like, do both, find out which works better for you. Um, but you you had outlined a lot around your, what is it, your proficiency or um, process efficiency and how that plays into helping you decide which one is really just de dependent on the number of dependencies or blockers that you have in your system as you're measuring things that, that flow through it that can help point you in that direction. So um, it's it's always a fun conversation, but I was curious, like, is there any newer information that you bring? Do you still have that same position that you had uh, back in 2018? Um, any any thoughts there? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the biggest error I see in forecasting is the assumption that the size of the piece of work we're typing and coding is the major influence in lead time or cycle time. And it won't be, especially in scale organizations where we've got handoffs to other teams. We know that that the it's going to sit idle in a backlog somewhere or it's going to be blocked waiting for something uh, elsewhere. Um, and, and that's why, like, you know, I had that map of flow. One of the areas is on why does lead time distribution follow a certain shape? And it turns out to be it's the percentage of, of delays that we have in the system and the likelihood of those delays and the length of those delays and how many of them we have. I mean, we're in a very delay-rich environment uh, in software development. Um, if you do, and, of course, if you zoom out right to it's an idea we want to build to delivery, that's going to be even more delays than at a team level. We've committed to doing it. We're going to do it, and we've done it. Um, so at a team level, the size of the work probably will be a better indicator of lead time because 
within the team. The team has chosen to do it because they know they can do it. They're doing it and it's done. So at a team level, the size of the work will be a better indicator as long as work doesn't sit idle for long periods of time based on external dependencies and so forth. But if you zoom out at a, at a multi-team level or an organizational level, that's absurd. It's absurd to think that uh, that any one team cycle time will be an overly large influence of how long it took to deliver that piece of work. And most of the time when we're doing these upfront forecasts, we're doing it with multiple stories at a time. So, you know, like we've got to do this feature is 15 to 25 stories worth of work. Uh, so as as the story count grows, the more error you would introduce, assuming that story size played a pivotal role in the in 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 lead time. And the thing is, is it's not when we're not using size, we're taking a bet that the size distribution within our backlog sprint after sprint stays relatively stable. So in other words, if you're doing like if you're all of a sudden you're doing all really simple pieces of work, really like small stories, uh, maybe one big one, and then all of a sudden you shift to doing a hundred huge stories and one small one, your forecast is going to be wrong. But that that very rarely happens. We often sort of have a you know like a, a backlog has a distribution of a small, medium, and large pieces of work in it. And it's this, that distribution staying stable that we're taking a bet on when we're ignoring size of individual items. But that is a far safer bet than assuming that work isn't going to sit in, in another team's backlog occasionally or that we're going to get blocked waiting for a test environment. And it's the delays that are unrelated to the work item itself, which are the paper cuts in our industry. So... No amount of sitting down and analyzing a story and looking at it will tell you that there's going to be a pandemic and your teams are going to have to work remote. No amount of analyzing a single story is going to tell you the fact that your um, your test environment, you're going to have to go back and fix log4j across 100 machines, right? I mean, these things, it's the things which are unrelated to the thing you're looking at, which are the delays which cause our uh, our cycle time and process efficiency to be so low. And it's not low, it just is. That's just the process we have. I mean, even in a factory sort of uh, setting, they have storerooms of raw materials before they manufacture it. So if you're looking at from when the raw material arrives to when a finished product goes out, their process efficiency you know, in the, in the manufacturing world, you're lean, which was you know, deemed to be exceptional back in the 80s when you know, I was around, right? That's 30%. So we're only half of what manufacturing and factory people would be proud of in process efficiency. So our 5 to 15%, which is typical in our industry and software processes, is actually pretty damn good. I think that's because of Agile and the way we've sort of adopted it. Um, but being 5 to 15% means that if we assume that the size of the individual item played a role in the cycle time, we'd be wrong, and we are wrong. <laughs> so, uh, so I, if if you want to take a safe bet, start with with throughput and counts. Um, if you want to be a bit more accurate at a team level, go forth and do velocity and points. 
but never ever expect those points to be a good predictor at a multiple story level forecast. They add more error than they do accuracy. I want to double tap on something you you said inside of there. Um, we're we're in a delay rich environment, and I'm curious. Um, do you think that's because of how we structure our our teams, our organizations, or um, is it just because we're in a complex environment solving complex problems? Um, or do you think it's something completely unrelated to that? I think it's a bit of both, right? I mean, and there's always context. If you're if you're in an environment which is trying to do something that no one in the world has ever done before, uh, then you've got to expect the delays based on learning something. You know, uh, we got to we got to got to spike this, or we got to test this, or we got to choose or do some research on that sort of stuff. Uh, but if you're on version 134 and you're still getting stuck based on getting clarifications around requirements, that's a problem to solve, right? Uh, so I, what do I think about this question is our tools, our tool vendors have completely screwed up because if we look back at what, what has happened in the manufacturing world and the lean world, it was all about managing the delays. If you look at what we've done in the agile software world, it's all about managing status and where it is. And, and what we really want data around is where it's not moving. So what we should be in the business of is vividly trying to find the reasons work isn't flowing unnecessarily. So it's not, you know, don't, just like you don't count your planned outages, you count your unplanned downtime. You, you know, count all, because you, you may take an environment offline to refresh it. You've still got other traffic going somewhere else. But it's the same thing with blockers. There are good blockers and bad blockers. Um, and I think that that's where we need to be looking at. If it's avoidable and if it's just sort of something we should go after, um, we should do get some analytics around where work is stopped. Then most of the tools just give you a flag. Oh, it's blocked. Cool. And then everyone, oh, what, what are we having for lunch? Oh, let's, you know, let's go have a cup of tea. And then they forget it's blocked. So no one ever puts any any sort of urgency in fixing it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there's another stuff there, and you choose whether this goes into the final podcast or not. But I have a whole product called Blocked App, B-L-O-C-K-E-D, app.com. And it's free, but what it tracks is blockers. So it synchronizes with your Jira. And when you flag something as blocked, it sends a Slack message. It sends an email. It sends a reminder email. It sends a summary at the end of the day, sort of saying, this team is blocked on that team for this reason. And this is the urgency of it. Because the what I find is um, stuff gets blocked and our tools don't place any urgency on getting it unblocked. And, and we sort of, we say sort of manage WIP. Why is WIP high? Well, it's because this I can't make any progress on this one. Why not? Well, legal hasn't signed off on the privacy statement. You know, uh, let me, well, we used to just go to the other floor, but now you have to get in your car, drive over to the lawyer's house, tap on the glass window, hold up a firearm and say, sign off on the privacy agreement. <laughs> and uh, so it's sort of um, a lot more trouble now than it was, but it's communication on this stuff. So so I think there are good blockers through complexity and we just need time to not, not through the stuff that we're doing. And there's also unnecessary ones. I absolutely want to go after the unnecessary ones. And I think that's, 
that's where I want to try and force the tool vendors into, um, you know, having a report of days lost due to avoidable factors report. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, it's very simple stuff. Yeah, that that's interesting because then you could take the run rate of a scrum team or something like that and be like, well, they cost you forty thousand dollars a sprint, and you know, over the last how many you know quarter you've had four sprints that this team was blocked. So yeah, there was one hundred sixty thousand yeah. dollars we wasted this quarter. You know, like put my dollars into get, it and you'll get some action probably. It's going to get someone's attention. Yeah. Especially if you put that chart on yeah. the back of the restroom door. So when they're doing their business in the restroom, <laughs> they actually have to look at this chart days lost due to causes because well, they're doing waste. I'm going to show you the company waste uh, at the same time. <laughs> I like it. Win-win. So when you're talking oh. about the tools, um, I think that a lot of times the tools are f- focusing on, keeping people busy in that activation instead of like getting value out the door. And so yeah. I know one of the simple things that I, I've been really focusing on recently with a lot of clients is just like, just track your work item age. And like when things are going over like that 85% or, or getting close to that or 70% from this, wherever this is in this flow of this, this, you know, this value stream, like we need to be doing something like there's a reason for that. Like this is only age only begats age, right? It's only going to get older. It's only to get more delayed. So let's Don't do we know something it. about that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I think that that's, that's a nice way to, I mean, your block thing works too. Cause it's like, well, here, this is blocked. It's stopping. Days are getting counting right now. Like there's something we could do. Um, and so I like both. I like, I like both, I guess. Um, yeah, we've got to fix those causes. Like, I, mean, I love age. Uh, I, yeah, I, uh, one it. of the weapon age is a good one to do because it it sort of puts incentivizes fixing and getting rid of the older stuff before starting something new. Um, my only problem with generic sort of age is that just because it's approaching eighty five percent, it's a good point for a conversation. But it might be because it's one of the more innovative style of features of something that's really valuable to do. So it, uh, it's so in other words, something simple that should have been done, if it's at 85th percentile, that is far worse than something incredibly difficult to do being at the 85th percentile on, on, on age. And I don't want to have the – so I want to make sure that the things that were simple and the, the types of work that we do as our bread and butter – have a different age threshold than the things which are highly innovative and risky and difficult. So I sort of, uh, I like to plot age based on work item type, some classification of complexity or difficulty of where we expect it to be. Because I don't want those really simple one day ones to get to 17 days before I do something about it. I want to sort of say for this type of work, this is unusually uh, you know, it's 80 for, it, it normally takes us one day to do this stuff and we're at day two or, you know, something like, you know, uh, rather than having to wait for the average age of everything, all types of work in our process. So I think there's, there's sort of some different bands and stratas and categorization we can do to spot unusual earlier. So, you know, snow in, snow in Alaska isn't, uh, isn't unusual during winter snow in California you know, down in LA is, right? I mean, we we got to read, help people spot abnormal earlier. Yes. And, uh, and, and so, a good pattern, right? Yeah. And that's what you're doing with age. Predictability so is really about, 
Yeah, and that and because that's really what predictability is about, right? Making better decisions earlier. Like that's all we're really after. So how do you know when something's aging unnecessarily, when something's sitting and just delayed and it could be unblocked very easily? Like those are just how are you, whatever your system is, like finding those indicators is is really valuable and focusing on that. Not not on like, hey, we need people to work harder because now this thing's, you know, past eighty five percent in a level. Well, like, that's, it's, ne it's never really yeah. that. You, no. And a lot of those people, even that, that simple one day story that went long, uh, could be blocking a whole team from making progress on something else. Right. So it's, it's, um, it's a more complex flow environment that we're dealing with here. So a delay on a one point on, on a very simple story could, could be the, the cause that if you fixed the reason work gets blocked in that way, you unlock a whole heap of extra value delivery that you otherwise wouldn't have got. And that's the exciting stuff I like helping people see is, mm -hmm. um, all right. So, uh, sure. I mean, it, it only, it, it, it's only a day longer than normal, but that day longer than normal meant you missed the window to get into this team sprint, which meant that it, there was a two week delay on their side. And, uh, and we, we sort of, again, we, we get these paper cuts in our flow. So these really insignificant and avoidable blockers just start disrupting and making our flow turbulent so that it becomes impossible to predict what we're doing. So if you want to use points and velocity, start dealing with those small reasons that flow gets disrupted because that's what's, uh, that's what's causing it to not matter because uh, it's sitting idle in that other team's backlog for two weeks. I don't care if it's a small, medium, and large. It doesn't matter anymore because it's had a two-week delay sitting sitting still. Now, Ferrari in, in uh, peak hour traffic. I don't care what speed it could do if it was moving. It's not moving. So that, that Ferrari and, uh, you know, my little Corolla is actually equally performant at that point in time. So a better predictor of how long it's going to take to travel a distance is the time of day you're you're traveling, not not what car you're in. So I have to ask you, Troy, we talked about your keynote a couple times here. And every time the keynote comes up, you, you make a, a little bit of a, there's a facial <laughs> reaction that comes on for the listeners that are out there. And so I got to ask you, what is that about? Like, what are you, what are you, why, why, why the reaction? Oh, I mean, it's, those keynotes are hard. Uh, I mean, I, I just at the start of it that, um, you know, in the early days there, uh, when I finally told my, my mother that I was getting married, she looked stunned. She said, I thought you were gay. You never, like, like, like you dated? Like, what, what did you do? And uh, and the point is, is that, uh, you know, um, uh, I probably wasn't. I, I'm probably severely Asperger's or autistic. But back in the 70s, that was not really sort of diagnosed, right? So standing on a stage with that many people around, having to make eye contact and, and try and keep a cohesive, coherent thought, but I can't do it in this in in, in this blog now podcast. What was the chance of me doing it in front of that number of people? Uh, so that 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 a lot of the time, I think, if you don't do those sort of keynotes all the time, it's an out of body experience. So I don't remember what I said. Like I have the slides, and I'm told there's a video, but I'm never watching it. Like, are you kidding me? So I mean, there there is a. Um, I drew on a lot of people's experience uh, there. So, you know, I grabbed people and said, what are the messages you think we need to get out about this stuff? So uh, Cat Sweddle was, was pretty much, we were up till 
2 a.m. the night before finishing the slides, but you know, paring down 300 down to 50. Sort of. um, so there, I felt the pressure of that because you know it was one of the first times we got the Agile Alliance to take metrics and data as a serious topic that was worthy of a keynote. Uh, and I didn't want to blow it. Mm. Um, and I had to make it relevant for a group of people like, I don't have the same views as. So I'm not the agile coach that, you know, how to run a good retrospective. Like, you know, where's the data? If there's no data. I'm not, I'm not turning up to the retrospective. So uh, attach the data to the calendar invite and I'll be there. But, um, you know, like, so that that was a, difficult topic for me to talk about to that group the fact that now people like you are all enthusiastic about it and uh, you're you're doing your pro cam and stuff jeff and stuff like that on on metrics is a huge shift in the industry that wasn't there 10 years ago you know we were uh we was we were still sort of like um yeah we were still very raw on the use of data in our world yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, did, I mean, Jeff, what did you give me out of like a, a four or five or a six out of ten, maybe? We, uh, I mean, not not that sound brown nosing or anything, but Jeff and I made an entire talk out of just a few minutes of your segment, where you, and and this is the part that really just struck home to me because I've I've lived it so many times. But you're when I go into an organization and I think about all the data that they're collecting, it's these three general buckets, right? It's it's what are we working on next? What's the status of things and what's the impact of it is? And you you mapped it out. And it was like time and time again, that is exactly the experiences that I've, that I've had. And you positioned it perfectly, which is like, if we could redo this and we've thought about which would move the needle the most, this is where yeah. I would propose us spending the majority of our time on. Um, and literally just two weeks ago, um, I, I, we didn't we didn't talk about it, but I'm, I'm a product manager at Acorns and I I had them watch, you know, a, a segment of, of your, of your talk. And then I showed them that the, the Monte Carlo forecasting tool that you have on your website, that's mm-hmm. a tool that I've been using for years. I know Jeff uses it. Um, he, he's talking whenever we're doing courses and whether this is a scrum course, um, you know, for scrum masters or, uh, product owners, more of a product management course, like I am pulling that tool out and showing it and really trying to reinforce why why should you give a damn about this? How should you be using a tool with data to help you inform decisions about what you want to be going after next? Because this tool, uh, like you plug your shit into it in five minutes, like if that, and great, now you've got your forecast. Now you're able to spend all of that time that you would have been spending on, on this stuff on the bigger, more important questions of what have we learned? What is the value of the things that we just shipped? Um, and how can we use that information to help influence the next stuff that we're going to be going after? So, I, I mean, I, I give it nothing short of a nine or a 10 on a scale of one to 10, honestly, because I really think it's that valuable, the information that you were putting out there. And, you know, that's that's actually one of the top questions that I had for you is, you know, you, you talked about measuring the value of outcomes um, or measuring value, measuring outcomes. And as an industry, as to what you were just saying, like, I feel like we're making solid progress in that. That has been a drum that I've been consistently hearing for probably the last four to five years now. Um, And when I think holistically, I think your keynote was one of the first times that I really started to hear that message. 
Um, I know Daniel Vicante has also been very animate about this, you know, talks a lot about flow. Um, Jeff and I are both big fans of him. But I, I feel like that message is being received. And at least personally, I'm starting to see uh, changes in the industry overall. What like are you seeing the same thing? Do you or do you have a different perspective on how we're transitioning to that? No, I see the same thing. Uh, I I think now it would be ludicrous for any like there is a lagging indicator that the market has adopted something, and that's when the big consulting firms start teaching it. So if you look at what what sort of yeah. the larger consulting firms are now teaching, they're teaching outcomes in agile. Yeah. Uh, so we know that 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 it not only has it been received, it's being purchased. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't be offering it. Uh, so uh, you know, our job is to the things that we do better than the big consulting firms is we make it practical and actionable. You know, they they. Their job is to create the PowerPoint decks that that teach the reasoning and the problem case for it, but they won't ever be successful in in delivering it. Um, so that takes the whole industry to start building the techniques to do that. And I'm starting to see more people asking for that, asking for that knowledge. Um, we're still a bit we're still a bit wrapped up with trying to understand how to scale. So I think. Um, even if we did choose to do the right things, are we able to get those things done? Is there still a bit of a gap there? So I think we need to uh, we need to increase our ability as an industry to should someone say this is what they want to do, can we do that thing, not just something else based on availability and capacity constraints that we have? Or, and uh, I and then then setting outcomes will have an impact because we'll be choosing work to further an outcome. I like Klaus's, Klaus Leopold's, the flight level stuff on that area. It's the one that has a particular flight level, which is about be explicit about what you want to move and then choose the things you're going to do to make that move. And I do the same thing in metrics. I use the Odom sort of style. I come up with the outcome. Tell me the decisions people need to make to cause that outcome to come true. Now tell me the insights you need to see to make that decision. And now I'll tell you what to measure. So I tend to always start with the outcome and decisions that I need people to make. Uh, and I think the same thing with with value. We come up with the outcomes, that's great, but now we need to enable the systems to deliver work in that order. And often we're structured for yesterday's outcomes, not today's or tomorrow's outcomes. So we need to become faster at reorganizing, dynamic reteaming, team topologies, sort of stuff to make sure our organizations are capable of delivering things towards those outcomes. And I think until we do both of those, setting the outcomes is just going to become theater. So that's my fear, is mm-hmm. that, and uh, which is why I'm so in on dependencies at the moment, because I find that an early indicator that we're not structured to deliver the outcomes we want is that we struggle to collaborate across teams. We get stuck somewhere. <laughs> um, we don't have enough of a certain skill that now we need, and we uh, didn't start training them up early enough so it yeah i think outcomes are absolutely important and enabling systems to deliver work towards those outcomes is the first step towards allowing that to come true and be useful you know a lot of those dependencies i still see this and you would think you know after agile's been around for 20 plus years now like the cross-functional team's been at the heart of it forever 
and teams don't have cross-functional teams. They have too many dependencies and they're missing skill sets. And then that adds to more dependencies. And I, I know like I've experimented a lot since you're talking 2018 with larger teams and with clients that I have, and I've had some as large as, you know, 16, 18 in it. And because you get rid of all the dependencies, there's no, it works, right? Like there's no dependencies and there's nothing stopping you. We're just going to solve problems for the business now. And the business starts joining and says, we want to be, you know, integrating with you. And like, there's just no delay. And so you get rid of, you know, get rid of all that delay between teams and multiple backlogs and mm -hmm. coordination costs. And it's like, I mean, yeah, there's there you there is coordination costs when you have that many people, but like if that if you have specialized skills and you don't you you aren't to the point right now where you know where you you have a way to like propagate that knowledge across the teams, then larger teams can be really a, a good practice to experiment with. And maybe you you split at some point, or maybe you don't. But like I don't know, don't be afraid of that. You know, upper echelon experimenting with it. I think, yeah. What are your and thoughts that's on Jeff, that? I know you talk about that before. Yeah, that's why I talked about that in that, in that aforementioned uh, keynote. There is right is that we often uh, we're, we're we're scared of bloating our teams, uh, you know, up to larger sizes than seven plus or minus three. Uh, but what we're doing by doing that is we're increasing the co coordination costs elsewhere. Uh, and maybe that problem of larger team sizes isn't as big as what we were paying dividends to. And that was one of the, you know, the inhalation moments during the keynote. <gasps> He's saying teams can be larger than seven plus or minus three. Oh my God, this guy's terrible. And then I said, you got to compare teams versus teams. And <gasps> there was, there was, um, there was even a double inhalation sort of, um, because we need to know what are system problems or local problems. Uh, and larger teams, if you look at the data and I presented it there is that there's a very small, like three or four percent difference between seven and fifteen people on a team as far as performance across those four flow measures I mentioned earlier. But think about the just the um, disruption of coordination of two or three teams together. That's much more than three percent impact on flow. And so, uh, so where we do seven plus or minus three people is right at a team level. But what about at an org level? If we applied that same rule to the org, we should never have more than seven plus or minus three teams having to collaborate together. And yet a lot of our organizations have 100 plus. So, I mean, there is no one right number here. If you're in a technical environment which requires a large set of small individual specialist skills, then your teams probably should be larger to give you more chance of having an available resource with that skill set local to you in your control. But I used to just do that during my one-on-ones with my directs when I when I used to be someone important, right? I used to sort of say, what skill set do you need that you don't have? What skill set do you have that if you gave up would cause the least impact? And I would just do speed dating rounds. So day in, day out, I'd have one-on-ones with my directs and I would sort of say, well, you need a designer. Well, you know, Jill said she has a designer that she could loan you <laughs> uh, if you could find her a tester. And then, uh, oh, I know Jack has a tester. I'll do that. So we were, we were helping people find the right homes temporarily to solve constraints that were emerging based on new types of work we were choosing. Um, so sure you can plan some of it and get ahead of it, but some of it you have to build a reactive workforce where um, you still realize that as an organization, you're in it as a whole, not as in it as an individual and, um, mm -hmm. and start sharing those resources. Just data around that can really help too. I found like if you just take like the skill set that you're missing and say how often are we missing that, and then like 
measure that over time? Like you'd be like, yeah, it's always that DBA skill set. Like, okay, well, if it's always a DBA skill set, then maybe you need that on your team right now. Like, or, you know, and I, there's even been examples where it's like, well, it's always legal. And it's like, there is so much here. We actually are going to put the lawyer on the team for like two or three sprints. And then we're going to move them off when we're done. But like, there's so much here yeah. right now. And that we've done stuff like that in different, different groups. So I think that that can be really valuable. Like try to get rid of those most frequent ones. Yep. It's, in, it's, it's smart. All right. And like, I mean, that's, that, that should be the job we're doing. Um, not arguing whether points or counts are better. We should be dealing with these sort of bigger sort of uh, these bigger blockers and yeah. objectives to flow. All right. Well, Troy, thanks for this time. Uh, is there anything at this point that you want to plug to our, our listeners? No, I mean, just the free course and whatever. So uh, I'm sure there'll be links in that, you know, learn.focusedobjective.com is uh, where that free course is at. And uh, if you want to start tracking blockers and getting data around dependencies and blockers and days lost due to different types, blockedapp.com, B-L-O-C-K-E-D, app.com. And again, you don't have to pay anything for those. Uh, And yeah, go forth and think broader. (laughs) <laughs> Agile is a big space where we don't have to get stuck in just sort of running retrospectives. Thank you for listening to the Agile Wire. We are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Store. See you next time.